Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the Blessed Noble and fully self-enlightened one. I'm just wondering whether there's a, a question somebody has which is, I can hinge my talk on. It always produces a sort of dead silence. <laughs> <laughs> there might be something I can really mind that they wondering about the Buddha's teachings. Could you possibly speak a little bit about um, things not having an inherent existence? Ah, the old inherent existence. <laughs> um, this is very much um, a Mahayana way of expressing things. It's basically uh, saying that everything is contingent, everything is dependent on everything else or on something else which is dependent on something else, dependent on the other, so that you end up with a world which is just completely interconnected. Um, and therefore, nothing has its own being. Right? Nothing can exist completely on its own. So you can't take anything out of this universe and expect it to exist. It'll just disappear or whatever. And that when we take that into ourselves, you see, that's where it uh, begins to undermine this idea of who I am. So uh, just consider all your thoughts. Yeah. Have you ever had an original thought, a thought which has never been thought before? <laughs> I mean, occasionally you do get a human being who comes up with an original thought. I mean, somebody must have discovered the wheel, I suppose, at some point. But most of our thoughts are just rehashing of thoughts that have been given to us. I mean, they do have, of course, a twist of our own personality and, and experience. But all our thinking is dependent on the language we've been taught. Yeah? And through the language, whatever information has come to us. So one of the little uh, conceits that we suffer from is that, you know, my thoughts are... Uh, particularly uh, one of the conceits we can suffer from is that, you know, I've had this amazing thought and it's, it's, it is absolutely original. Nobody else thinks like me. <laughs> and then, then you write your, your book and you find that lots of other people have written similar things. So there's nothing, there's nothing which is not, uh, which, which, uh, which isn't dependent on something else, which hasn't arisen because of some other influence. Our emotional life, it's always dependent on something, isn't it? You're always happy about something or sad about something else. You can't have, you can't have an, an emotion which isn't about something, can you? Difficult, anyway. You've got to be... <laughs> it's, always, it's always dependent on some sort of stimulus, something out there, or some history within ourselves. 
me. You know, we get that. And we have a history within ourselves of, of experience. So when it comes back to us as a memory, it will bring up some sort of emotional state. The body, of course, is even more obvious. I mean, the body is entirely dependent on carrots, and cabbage, and things like that. And, uh, uh, and, and, and the air we breathe. Okay? We're, one, we're one breath away from death. What's a bit funny, isn't it? On breath away from death. So that sense of interdependency, you see, getting away the idea that <clears throat> that we often feel that uh, I'm a very individual, distinct person, and uh, I, you know I do my own thing in my own way, in my own time. You know, that very sort of uh, more American than European, I think, idea of <laughs> of that the success that I've had in this world is all due to me. Yeah. Never mind all the workers and, and everybody's put that input in. If it weren't for me, I wouldn't be a multimillionaire, I wouldn't be a billionaire. I did it all, all by myself. What's the name of that woman that wrote something about that? She was into that sort of ideology. Um, what is it? Oh, dear me. She was a Russian emigre in America. Yeah, Yeah, Rand, you see. And all these people, all these, because um, I, I saw a program, you know, because of my memory, I can't remember it. But there's a little bit, <laughs> I have a forget of it, not memory. And because of this, uh, <laughs> because of this, uh, Ian, what was her name? Ian, no. Anne, 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 Anne. Um, They interviewed people who were uh, head of these big, um, you know, multi, these California, um, very successful businesses, IT businesses. And there's one man, he said, you know, he, he just felt completely empowered and, and he was of the opinion that this whole empire that he built was entirely up to him. He'd done it. <laughs> so there's that sort of uh, egotistical, very self-centered idea that we can suffer from when we don't see that our interdependency. And another way of, of uh, saying that we're interdependent is this, is this business of in, inherent. We're not inherently independent. Not inher we're not, we can't exist on our own, full stop. Now, all that is around the teaching of not-self, you see. Yeah. All around that not-self. Now, um, how does it happen that we end up with these sorts of um, uh, delusions? You see? Eastern people... Um, are still much more community-based. Um, you know, the Chinese, the Burmese, they still have a sense of uh, me being part of a community, me being, uh, me being just part of something bigger than me. There isn't that severe individual separation between me and, and the rest. Um, now, this... Uh, this deep delusions to who we are is, is the core of our problem in the Buddha's understanding. It's to do with identity, to do with uh, really uh, beginning to investigate this, this sense of I. See? Now we've talked about that a little bit this morning, but, it's un but in a sense you have to understand that what the I does mean is it creates a relationship to the world. So um, the desire for happiness, the desire for happiness is coming from the Buddha within. <coughs> it's the Buddha within that wants to be happy. 
It's not, it's not a mental thing. It expresses itself as a mental thing because we express that desire for happiness in wanting things, in wanting fame and relationships and all that. Uh, but the deep desire for happiness is coming from this Buddha within, right? I say Buddha within because it's not quite the Buddha yet. It's, it's, it's the Bodhisattva. It's, it's still deluded. And uh, it's, it's found itself in this psychophysical organism. Now, the Buddha doesn't go into the whys of that. He's not interested in why should that happen. Right? He's not interested in some sort of um, metaphysics. He's, in, he's only interested in how. how. How does it happen that we're unhappy? How does it happen that we're chasing these dragons that don't actually exist or at least won't deliver the happiness um, that we want? And it all comes back to this fundamental basic uh, position of not knowing, not knowing. Now, in dependent origination, which is the psychological teaching of the Buddha, it begins with that word, avijja, not knowing. It's often translated as ignorance, which gives it a sort of culpability, you know, like you're ignorant. But that's not the meaning of it. It's just simply don't know. And we're born into this form. When I say we, I mean that, that Buddha within is born into this form. And it's not surprising that it should completely identify with it. So here it is, a screaming little baby, and it hurts, and sometimes it's happy. And, and, it, and there's a, a, an unexpressed and unreflective identity with it. And that stays with us for most people till they, till they die. I am this body. See? If... If, if, if we understood, if we really, really understood that I am not this body, then we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be shaken by sickness or by death. Okay? So the fear of death and the anger around it and the grief around it are measures of this identity that we have with the body. So <clears throat> once we have this identity of the self, once we have this, that this, this body, this, this, per, this person that I am, which includes the body, the mind, the heart, the whole psychophysical organism. Uh, once I identify that and I'm seeking happiness, then you know what is it that makes me happy? It's the accumulation of things. The more the more I accumulate, the happier I am. So you know, to have lots of money makes me happy, but to have billions of it, really, that makes me feel very safe. <laughs> I'd have to do something terrible to lose billions. I might not spend it, that's irrelevant. I can do anything I want with, the, with all my billions, but the fact is that makes me feel safe. See? Now, um, that's the underlying psychology that, that, should we say, subsists underneath all our gathering and acquisitiveness, our greed and lust and all that sort of stuff, is the fact that uh, there's a deep sense of insecurity. That deep sense of insecurity manifests every time the body falls ill or somebody we know dies and it sort of cuts into us, you see. Now we have to cover that insecurity up because it's not a pleasant place to be. And we do it by accumulating wealth, accumulating friendships, uh, accumulating spiritual um, highs. You know, it's, it's very comforting to think that I'm an amazingly good meditator. <laughs> So any way that we can cushion ourselves against this whole business of insecurity, 
becomes that acquisitiveness. Now, once you've got once you've got something, uh, you have to protect it. You have to protect it against enemies, enemies who want what you've got. So uh, we we do it through aversion. We try to get rid of things that are threatening us. You know, at worst, murder, of course. But uh, at simple things like jealousies, see, jealousies, envies. Uh, are those little ways that we see that our fame or what we are, what we've accumulated isn't as good as somebody else's. So we're constantly trying to make myself feel more and more safe. And anything that threatens me, anything that threatens my accumulations, I see them as enemies and I have to get rid of them one way or the other. If, of course, it all gets too heavy, if the enemy is right on top of me and I can't, I can't escape the enemy, then my, my escape route is to turn inward with the hatred and I end up committing suicide. So these two, these two poles of, of the enemy create both the aversion and the fear. So there we have it. That's, that's the basic platform of our delusive relationship to the world, coming from a wrong identity of who I am. I'm trying to accumulate things to make myself feel safe. I'm averse to anything that threatens that sense of safety, which is created by these accumulations. And uh, when it gets too much, uh, I've got to run for it. I've got to hide, I've got to find a cave, somewhere to, somewhere to uh, disappear into. Now, that basis then, what it does is it begins to manifest <clears throat> in the way we think, in the way we speak, in the way we act. And that's when uh, the ethical life comes into, into existence. So just to separate out morality from ethics, morality meaning these sort of basic rules that uh, presumably most of us in this room uh, now generally keep, you know, murdering and thieving. <laughs> ethics is a much broader concept of relationship. So what is our relationship to other human beings? What is our relationship to the animal world? What is our relationship to the world of plants, even to the world of minerals? What's our relationship? That was the old medieval, wasn't it? Minerals, plants, animals, and human beings. There's your four kingdoms, as they were called. So what's, what's our relationship to that, you see? And when we begin to uh, investigate that, it's, we, we find that it's really all there to service me. Okay? Because I'm constantly trying to feel safe, and I feel safe by making myself happy. And it's me who defines what makes me happy. So it might be riches, it might be fame, see? It, might be, it might be anything which draws me into my happiness and makes me feel safe. So that's, your, that's what happens when uh, this sense of I, this sense of me being a person, an individual in the world, um, that's how we begin to relate to it. Now, um, we're not... Our, our personalities and characters are not all like that. Part of it, of course, is driven by love, compassion, sympathetic joy, and all the rest of it. And it's beginning to realize that actually that's where our true safety lies. Our true safety lies in really facing up to the reality of life, which is about growing old and sick and dying and all that, and to begin to relate to people in a slightly different way. And that different way is this business of interconnectedness. 
So when we talk about interconnectedness at a heart level, we, we, all we talk about is love. Yeah? Love, uh, which is friendship. Uh, compassion, which is that movement in the heart which wants to help somebody who's in some sort of difficulty or pain. And compassion itself is not a, uh, it's not a painful state. I, I was at this center and um, they came up to me and, and presumably a monk, you know, and they said, we've decided that the Buddha couldn't be compassionate. And I said, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I said, why is that? Because he'd be suffering. Because he'd be suffering. If he was compassionate, he'd be suffering. That's a completely uh, confusion between compassion and grief. Grief is when we um, have pity on somebody. Grief is what we feel when uh, we've lost something personal, when it's some attachment that goes. But compassion is a joyful thing. Compassion, compassion raises great joy in the heart when you're helping somebody. So that when, when you're helping somebody and you feel some sort of grief for them, that's coming from that, that sense of pity. So all these beautiful states like love, compassion, sympathetic joy, bearing us too. And as we move along the spiritual path, part of it is the happiness, the, the ordinary human happiness. So the Buddha talks about going from darkness to light. And part of the training, half of the training, is to do with ethics, is to do with uh, developing the beautiful side of our personalities. And in so doing, we find ourselves much more at home in the world, much more connected, see? And in that, of course, the, the safety, the safety, the lack of the fear of, of insecurity comes because we don't accept the insecurity of life. But once you accept the insecurity of life, you undermine the fear of insecurity. There is insecurity. You know, there's not much you can do about it. So uh, uh, part of our spiritual life is the cleansing of that, the purification of the heart, right, based on the wrong understandings of habits that we've uh, developed because of these wrong understandings. Yeah? Unwholesome habits. So this word akusala translated as unskillful, unwholesome. Okay? But the other side is the development of the beautiful heart. And it's, it's, it's slowly moving in that direction, which is part and parcel of the process. Now, when it comes to this identity, the self, it's much easier to drop the self when the heart is pure than when it's not pure. If, if you're very angry with somebody, it's, it's very difficult to say, well, I'm not angry, there is anger. <laughs> but, but when you're actually... When you're actually uh, moving from a position of love, it's easier to let go of this self-centeredness because the other is your center of attention. Okay? It's much easier to let go of me, me, me all the time when you're in a compassionate relationship with somebody who's suffering because they are the focus of your attention, not you. Okay? So that whole movement away from what is negative within us to what is positive is something that we can actually do. I mean, that, that we can actually practice. And, you know, by, by simply uh, every day just giving ourselves a little task. For instance, um, there was an occasion when the Buddha visited uh, uh, these monks 
there were three Arahats, mind you, there were three fully liberated people. And uh, he asks uh, the chief monk there, how do, you live, uh, how do you live in harmony with each other? And uh, he said, well, every day when we wake up, when we get up, we say to ourselves, why don't I put aside what I want to do and do what the others want to do? Now, frankly, that only works if everybody says that. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, uh, you tend to be abused. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, but you can see how that, that attitude, you see, um, to, go to, to go to work, for instance, and to have a, a more of an attitude of service, not, not like, what, what, does this, what does the company owe me? But more in the sense of, what can I offer to the company? See? That doesn't undermine your rights. It doesn't under, doesn't allow you to be abused, but it's your attitude of service which uh, undermines a lot of negativity you might have around work. As the same with relationships, uh, love is is putting the other one first, uh, but it's not forgetting oneself. Now that's the important point. So I'm often I'm often asked that you know about well. You know, if, if somebody being abused either at work or in a, in a personal relationship, uh, should one stay there? Well, it's up to the person to decide. But at some point, when 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 the abuse becomes uh, to a level which is uh, which makes no sense and, and you can't get through it, and you can't um, you can't get the other to to see what they're doing, then often it's the best ploy just to move out or murder them. <laughs> One way or the other. <laughs> so um, uh, we've got this uh, basic position of what the Buddha calls delusion. Okay, the delusion lies in an identity. The identity is this body, heart, and mind. This psychophysical or this human being, right? Conventionally, a human being, uh, and we're trying to seek happiness. And we're seeking happiness in the world. And it can't deliver. It can't deliver because it's impermanent. Every time you get something which you really want and you've always wanted, the thing begins to corrode, corrupt, disappear, or somebody else nicks it. So, <laughs> so we're forever chasing a dragon, you see, that doesn't actually exist. And what it leads us into is frustration. All those things that we talked about this morning to pleasure, the, the frustration, the grief of loss, the fear of loss, and the boredom, the boredom that rises, and uh, addictive behavior. So our practice is now to go back on that, to go back on that process. And the way we do it is both by developing what is beautiful in us through the practice of meta meditation, through actually looking at our lives and what we do, and beginning to see it as a service, uh, and on the uh, negative side, to uh, begin to undermine it through this process of not indulging those, um, not indulging those uh, uh, desires which we see are unwholesome. And we've learned the trick. The trick is to be fully aware, to let the desire come up with all its energy, and just to stay with it and wait for it to exhaust itself. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. But of course, the difficulty is that you have to keep doing it, and that's the uh, that's that's the meaning of renunciation in Buddhism. So uh, again, we make this distinction between self-mortification 
and renunciation. So remember when the Buddha joined the, uh, well, practiced uh, seemingly as the James do, it was more of getting rid of this physical world, getting rid of this body, in order that the soul might be released. He didn't find that particularly helpful. But he didn't give up on the idea of renunciation. So renunciation is giving something up to see our attachment to. To see how how um, we become emotionally attached to something. I mean, the normal, I mean, I know most of you have heard this, but the normal uh, thing I say to people is, you know, just to, everybody has a, a favourite programme on telly, and you, you, you sort of get your mug of coffee and your biscuit, and you sit in the chair, you see, and, and, and you... And you, you don't turn the TV on. You just look at the screen, <laughs> and you know it. And you know, and you know it's the last of the series. That's a good one. And it really is a fantastic one to try on yourself. You know, you don't get too masochistic. <laughs> but what it does, it, what it manifests for us is our is that this incredible attachment. And remember that we don't actually know the strength of these attachments until we lose something. That's the that's the bugbear. So um, this whole business of uh, identity is undermined through uh, beginning to understand that we are constantly in relationship, we're constantly moving in relationship with the world around us. And um, the practice of uh, Vipassana is really to dig deep down into that point of identity. And that's what I was saying this morning about making everything an object. Okay, so when, when physical pain comes, when emotional, uh, any emotional state comes, happiness, unhappiness, physical state of pleasantness, um, pleasure, uh, is, is to actually begin to look at it closely, you see, and to begin to sense that there's a separation there between the knowing, between that which is doing the investigation, investigating, and that which is being investigated. Yeah? And to recognize that the perceiver, that which is perceiving, can't be the perceived. And now as that gap, as that gap becomes much more clear to us, as we begin to feel that gap more, the separation between the knowing and, the, and what is being experienced, you see, um, it's, as though, it's as though the knowing is beginning to understand its own quality, its own, uh, its own peculiar um, being, you might say. Now, uh, for those of you for whom that's clear, remember, uh, the sense of self-awareness, the sense of, of the observer, the feeler, right, is still uh, something that you're perceiving. You can't be that either. And it's turning towards the feeling of the observer, the feeling of it, the feeling of presence, and the peculiar thing is that it's pointing in the right direction. See? Um, it's just like when you look into a mirror, you, you're looking at your face in the mirror, and we delude ourselves in thinking that's how people see us. Yeah, you've all done the two mirror trick, I hope. No? You've not done that? Oh, dear, dear, dear. <laughs> you, have to do... <laughs> you, you get a mirror, and, and you look into the mirror that you're holding, to see which is giving you back the image from the original mirror. So remember, when you look at the mirror, you're looking, you're looking at your face the other way around. Yeah? 
So to turn it round and to see how people really see you is a real shock. And you want to... <laughs> <laughs> you didn't think your nose was quite so bent. See, so, so it's really worth doing. And what that's telling us is, in this observer, you see, that the feeling of the observer is a sense of presence, but, in a, but it's a mirror image of the Buddha within. And so it's actually looking in the right direction. So that sense of presence is telling us that there is something which is uh, permanent, which is not born, not dying, doesn't die, and all the rest of it. Now, uh, it's a bit unfortunate these days because, uh, especially with neuroscience, there's a, I'm sure you've come across, well, some of you know uh, what's happening in, in Buddhism, <laughs> is this whole movement of uh, secular Buddhism. A lot of it is based on uh, on uh, neurobiology, which in a sense reduces everything to the brain, reduces everything to um, to neurons and, and ultimately to subatomic particles, I presume. And that um, as you see as you see the brain working, even though the neurobiologists can't feel what you're feeling. So if you feel angry, certain parts of the brain light up. Uh, there's a presumption then, right, which is a leap of faith, that actually what you're measuring or what you're seeing is an emotion. Whereas in Buddhist psychology, what you're seeing is the effect of the mind on matter. You see? So the mind in the Buddhist teaching is something separate from, but still has the quality of impermanence, etc., but can actually exist outside this physical frame. And that, uh, that is uh, what you get is a disbelief in that completely. Uh, the body and mind are all based upon the brain. And that, therefore, consciousness itself is just a, an epic, uh, what they call it, an emergent property. Okay? So there's a lot of people who uh, are now in Buddhism who take that as their basic understanding. But it's very difficult to, um, to hold that position if you read the scriptures. And uh, one book that uh, you might like to get, you can get a PDF of it. It's, uh, you can write on my and you might be able to get a copy. But you can get a PDF of it and, and put it on your e-reader. It's a book called The Island, which has been a collection of um, quotes from the scriptures put together by uh, Venerable Amaro, you know, Ajahn Amaro, who's the chief monk now at Amarati, and uh, Pasano, who's the chief monk in America. Abigiri in California, and they've uh, they were tackling this problem, you see, of, um, of of really, from one point of view, of undermining the um, the teaching of the Buddha about there is something which is not conditioned, and I I can't see how they get themselves into that position, frankly, even in my uh, lack of uh, knowledge about the about the scriptures, so. In that process of vipassana, we are beginning to distinguish uh, between that which is arising and passing away, that which is moving constantly within that inner vision, and something which is observing it. You see? Now, there comes a point when you uh, are close enough to that, uh, to that process where what you begin to see is that consciousness itself the process of being conscious 
is not continuous. It arises and passes away. Just like that, you see. So then you realize that, you see, the world we're living in is completely being manufactured by us on minimal data coming in from the world. So um, if you've seen these pictures, uh, if you've seen how the eye moves around the picture that, that we're looking at, how it picks up, how it's constantly moving, and we're, we're completely unaware of it, because as the eye moves quite automatically around, picking up, picking up this, uh, it's coming into this brain-mind uh, complex, and what we're seeing is put on a screen. That screen is consciousness. All this information is, to me, it's, almost, it's, it's virtually like um, a television or a monitor. All that information is coming through the electrics, and what we're, what we're aware of only is not the map, not all the stuff that's going on behind there, but only what's actually on the screen in front of us. Yeah. And when you begin to um, recognize that, you see, then you realize that this the, the world that we're actually living in is the world I'm manufacturing. When I say I, I mean this psychophysical organism. So uh, in the universe, there's no light. Right? There are photons, but there's no light. You have to have a retina, you have to have a sense base in order to perceive light. There's no sounds in the universe, it's completely silent. You have, to have, you have to have the mechanism of hearing in order to hear it. And that's our sense, our sensing body. And our sensing body is limited. You know, we don't have the sense of smell of a dog, okay? which is unfortunate. We don't, we don't, you know, we don't, we don't have that, that clarity of hearing that some of the animals have. Uh, our range of perception is limited by our sense base. We can't see ultraviolet rays. I don't know. But some, some, some animals can. Some animals have that, uh, uh, what's it called, that uh, magnetism, you know, in, the, uh, in their head that they, they, can, they can actually feel where they are. In fact, some human beings have that. I, I met a, there was a man who came to help us, just out of the blue, came to help us put up a cootie, this hut that we have. And... Uh, no matter which way you twisted him, you could turn him in any way you wanted to. Eventually, he would point to north, uh, magnetic north, uh, within a degree. Figure that. <laughs> <laughs> now, I know that when I go out walking, it's always the opposite to what I'm thinking I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, pathetic. So, uh, these sensibilities are entirely dependent upon this body, heart, and mind. And when we begin to realize that, you see, then of course you, you, take a, you take an interest in yourself, you take an interest in your psychology. You begin to realize that actually you're the only one who's going to take any real interest in your psychology. <laughs> <laughs> and that you're the one who's creating the mess and you're the one who can get out of it. So uh, I know that in... Um, you see, remember that the Buddha said that he was completely liberated from suffering. Right? He wasn't liberated from the body. Right? He had a body and he suffered. And he died of gastroenteritis or something. Okay. <clears throat> um, so uh, because he did it, he then, as it were, in the literal, in, 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 the, in the phrase of the, of the scriptures, he opened up the gates, the gates of the Dharma of them wide open. And so it means that we ourselves now are in the process of reaching that particular liberation, that nibbana. Now, uh, 
Nibbana in the East, you know, you don't get much talked about Nibbana. It's sort of presumed. Nobody, nobody really talked about it. You only talk about the path, about the practice, about the teaching. Nobody ever talked about about the ultimate, in a sense, because uh, in the culture it's just presumed. But for us, it's a very, it can be a very strange understanding that there is uh, a level of uh, being which has nothing at all to do with this phenomenal world. It's completely outside it. It is completely unconditioned. It is inherent. It has its own inherent, uh, to go back to the original question, it has its own inherent existence and is not dependent on the world. That's, that's the teaching. Now, the Buddha wouldn't go beyond that particular statement. He wouldn't, he wouldn't get into metaphysics. He wouldn't get into infer that therefore uh, there must be some sort of big being. You know? So there's no creator God. There's nobody who's judging us. All that's done within ourselves. And the process of liberation is entirely up to us. Not that people can't guide us and help us, but eventually it's us that has to sit on the cushion. We have to do the work. And the process of, the process of liberation uh, comes about through our own particular effort. That's all. Nobody can do it for us. So, you know, like they say in Zen, the Buddha can only point to the moon. I'll get you up there. Yeah? So uh, this Nibbana that we're moving towards, it's described in various ways. Uh, now, the usual way that he prefers is um, the negative. It's not born, it doesn't die. Okay? And the word he uses there is uh, a Pali word which translates as exists. There's another Pali word which is like our is, like, like, like this is a statue. So the is there has virtually no meaning. But if you say that statue exists, that gives it a different twist on it. So there exists. That which is not born doesn't die. And he says, if it did not exist, there'd be no escape from what is born, dies, is created, is conditioned. So it's quite clear. He talks about an ayatana. Ayatana here is the word that means a sphere of experience. So uh, we have six ayatanas. The sphere of seeing, you see, can't be confused with the sphere of hearing. They're two different ways of experiencing the universe. See? Then there's tasting, smelling, and the, all the mentation that goes on. Then he says that there is a sphere where there's none of this. Where there's no moon, there's no sun, there's no coming, there's no going, there's no staying, there's no time. See? Very clear statements. And then when it comes to a more positive way, he's got something like 32, ad 32 adjectives trying to point to it, uh, such as uh, something that we say uh, when we repeat, a refuge, a home, an island, an island, an island that you cannot go beyond. Right? So the island is something completely separate, separate from the landmass, and that's it, you can't go beyond it. How can we, how can we get a, a glimpse of that in our practices? How can we begin to uh, see it? Because this is what we're supposed to be, right? not becoming. The I is always becoming some other person. Even during the day, you might, you might change from being a mother, a father, to a work, uh, workmate, and so on and so forth. So your personality, your person, personhood is constantly shifting and changing. But here's a something which doesn't, doesn't do that. Right? It's beyond change. So in our practice, you see, when, you, when you're observing things and you, 
and you get a, more and more a distinct sense of being the self, being the observer, being the feeler, you see, and making that clear to yourself. And sometimes perhaps turning into that sense of presence that's there, especially when everything's calm, everything's peaceful. That's the time to do it. You can't do it when you're raging. So when you're calm, when you're peaceful, this is what I mean, that the more beautiful we become in our ethical life, the more beautiful our hearts become, the easier it is to drop the self. So when, when everything is peaceful, and it doesn't have to be in a sitting posture. You could be sitting in, in an armchair at home. You could be walking in nature. But as soon as you get that sense of being within yourself, being the observer, the one who knows, you see, just stop for a moment, you see, and, and just feel that sense of presence because it's a mirror image. It's a mirror image. Okay? And just see if you, can, if you can ask yourself, well, What's it made of? What's in, what's, in, what's in the knowing? What's it made of? Now, as far as we're concerned as human beings, we're made of three things. We're made of the mind, which expresses itself in thoughts and images. We're made of, emo- of, of, our, of our heart, which is expressed in emotions and mood. I'm using it as, a, as an emotional heart. And we're made of the body. And the only thing we know of the body is sensations and feelings. Sensations and feelings. Can you find any of that within the observer? So these are things that you can you can actually begin to question when you're in that very clear state of the observer, the feeler, the one who knows. And what that, what that's beginning to do for us is to clarify, is to is to begin to clarify for us where this state that the Buddha is talking about, this Nibbanic state is to be found. And the more we'll be drawn there, the more that we'll be drawn there. And the more you're drawn there, the more you're drawn to silence, the more you're drawn to peacefulness. Of course, you have to be careful that you then don't get into a sort of quietism where you just want to um, sit there, you know, anonymous under a tree or something. (laughs) There also has to be that outflow of wisdom. And that's exactly what happened to the Buddha. So he attained the state, and it must have been quite, quite amazing, you know. To him, he must have thought, "Yeah, what? Now, like, what is it?" I mean, he had to investigate the state that he'd actually found himself, found himself in. This, this liberation, he hadn't come across it. Nobody talked about it. Nobody, he didn't know anything about it. He had to actually investigate this state of being in nirvana. See? And it's when that he investigates that, and he investigates how he used to suffer, and how he overcame that suffering, and that's the psychology that we call dependence origination. And as soon as that happened, as soon as he, he, he gathered that, uh, the desire to share it was quite natural because it's no longer about him. Okay? So then he thinks then the memory of his two teachers come up and uh, they've both died. So there's a, a sense of sorrow about that. See, Do not confuse sorrow with grief. You see? Sorrow is a very pure state where you're resonating with somebody else's suffering. And the sorrow has to express itself in some compassionate act, even if it's only sending a good wish. See, otherwise it remains unrequited and can slip into a sense of grief, you know, a sense of unworthiness because you didn't do anything and all that sort of stuff. So you have to be uh, quite careful about that. Um, so there, in that sort of investigation, you see, we're getting close, we're beginning to perceive what the Buddha means by it. 
And when you're in that state, you begin to perceive it as a better state to be in. A better state to be in awareness than to be non-aware. Even though, you know, it's sort of uh, creating an enormous pain in the back, in the knees, in the neck. Uh, all this stuff's coming up. <laughs> uh, there's a sort of feeling that, well, even, even in this horror, it's better to be aware than to, than to go around like a monkey. Um, let me just see. Uh, just catch the time. Can you turn the lights on? I'm, I'm beginning to talk to the darkness. Okay. I'd just like to end by um, pointing out something that's been happening, I think, to a lot of people. Uh, all this business around. Uh, ISIS and, and the Islamic thing and all the horror stories that are coming out of there, you know, and how people can, I know, feel overwhelmed by uh, the horrors of it, you see. But remember, we, um, you, have to, you have to be really careful with yourself, you know, not go beyond what's possible. Uh, remember that there's two, you might say, two rings of power around us. The first one is what I can do. There's very little anybody can do about what's happening in the Middle East, either in, in uh, around Palestine, uh, around Palestine, or around what's happening to ISIS. Very little that you can actually do. The next part is the influence, what you can get other people to do, uh, and it might be, uh, you know, writing letters, whatever. Uh, there might be something that can be done there. But beyond that, if you try and get beyond that, all you're going to do is exhaust yourself. You're just going to get yourself into a, an absolute state of feeling uh, you know disempowered and all that sort of stuff and the fact is that you think that that's false but you are disempowered you can only do sort of things <laughs> so the, the final thing you can do is at least send good wishes now it might be that uh, you don't believe that your thought patterns can actually help other people in other places but at least it's, it's doing something within you to create a proper relationship to this to the situation that you find yourself in just on that note, I, had a, I have a friend in, in the Alabama who teaches dowsing. And one of the things he does is he gets two people um, to, on the, both sides of the room to, to, to send a thought to each other, a blessing or something like that, is all right? And they all douse that line, that energy line. And he says they can douse it for six weeks. They can feel that energy in the, in the line for six weeks. Okay, so you get say, Aboriginal... Song, what do they call them? Aboriginal song, song lines. Yeah, you see. So, uh, you, <clears throat> without getting too mystical about all this, <laughs> there, is, there is a point where you can say to yourself, well, I know enough about this situation. I don't have to keep feeding it with these images, with these. You know, sometimes you can turn the news off. Uh, you know, just keep feeding the same old bad story. Well, we know what's going on, and what can we do? Well, at least I can. I might be able to write a letter or send a goodwill or do something, you know. But but just to find ourselves completely disempowered is is just overreaching what we can do. And in a sense, it's a lack of it's a lack of humility, isn't it? You, know, you can do more than you can. It's a sort of pride. In it, you know? So just in case you you find yourself being quite upset about things that are happening around the world, the Pope's called it Third World War. He's close on me. <laughs> The beginning of a third world war. Yeah, it's pretty miserable. So on that happy note, <laughs> <laughs> remember that uh, 
our there's, there's two sides to our practice, you see, remember that. There's the side which is to do with ethics, which is to do with relationships, which is to do with letting go of all that selfishness and anger and all that stuff, and really a positive effort to develop uh, goodwill, compassion, joy. See? And as and as we're doing that, we're, we're, we're doing this investigation into impermanence, into... Um, into the process of this wrong desire, you know, really begin to see that. And the fact that what, when it remains only as a desire, nothing's happened. It has to be willed, right? There has to be a, an action which takes it into a pattern of thought or a pattern of speech or an action for something to happen. Um, and, the, and this business of not me, not mine, you see. So that's not that's not a negativity. Not saying there's, there is nothing. It's actually a way of investigating uh, this whole uh, problem of identity. Okay. So I'll leave a piece of paper there uh, with a, you know might be time to ask some questions, clarifications tomorrow afternoon. I can only hope. My words have been some assistance. May you, by your fierce commitment to the practice and uh, uh, devotion to, to uh, love, compassion, joy, and peace, and all the rest of it, <laughs> attain full liberation sooner rather than later. So uh, use this, uh, just see um, what, what your state is, whether you whether it's just a matter of relaxing and breathing in the night air and, and doing something like that, or doing some walking meditation. Uh, and then we'll come back and do the last couple of sessions of the, of the evening, you see. Uh, but the important thing is to, you know, to get in the habit of not allowing the mind to wander. That's all. Uh, yeah, and we're just, uh, there's no rest. There's no, you can't take a holiday in the spiritual life. You can't say, well, I'm just going to, like today, I'm just going to go berserk. <laughs> you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's like, once you're in there, you're in, you're locked in, you see. <laughs> and it's, it, you know, and, and not to expect big things, not to expect some, you know, huge out of this world bond that's going to break and will suddenly become, going to be floating angels or something, you know. Like the process is very slow, very, and the Buddha's called about gradual, a gradual training, you see. Sorry? Oh, I'm, well, this is it, you see. It takes the joy out of life. 